Hello, welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of the podcast, EMS, History, Myth, and Media. Thanks for listening to this, and I hope you listen to other episodes from the first two seasons. This is the second episode in the consideration of the history of advanced practice providers. Last episode was about physician assistants. This one is about nurse practitioners. As I mentioned in the episode about physician assistants, 1965 was serendipitously a banner year in medicine. 1965 saw the beginning of Medicare and Medicaid under the Federal Office of CMS in the Social Security Amendments of 1965. In unrelated circumstances, the specialties of physician assistants and nurse practitioners began in that same time frame. In the late 50s and early 60s, specialization in medicine was becoming more common. This slow change from the paradigm of generalist physicians, the family doctor or general practitioner, general surgeons, internal medicine doctors, sometimes obstetricians or pediatricians, these had been the extent of the specialists to which most people had access. The increase of specialties such as pulmonologist, cardiologist, oncologist, nephrologist, ENT, various others, began to lead those in positions of medical policy formulation to fear that there would not be sufficient family doctors or other primary care physicians available. One of the ideas to address this was to add a layer of medical providers so that the primary care could be more readily accessible. One answer was to train people, often drawn from military medics and corpsmen, to work with physicians, and that concept was called physician assistance. Another idea was to further train nurses, already educated in medical care, to fill some of the same or similar roles. This concept was the nurse practitioner. As I related in the episode about the history of physician assistance, two similar non-physician provider groups was initially referred to as physician extenders. This reflected the concept of allowing the physician or multiple physician practice to schedule more patient visits per day by having the physician spend less time with each patient by having the physician extender provide much or most of the history taking and initial evaluation. As these providers were not physicians and they were also not medical assistants or nurses but were somewhere between those two, the assistance to the physicians had come to be known as mid-levels. As the physicians advanced and evolved, the providers became more independent, their responsibilities and practice parameters increased, and this enhanced capability to provide care, previously only provided by physicians, has led to the nomenclature that they are now referred to as advanced practice providers, or APPs. So, how did nurse practitioners, which I will sometimes also call NPs, come to be? A remarkably forward-thinking and dynamic nurse, a former military nurse by the name of Loretta Ford, working with a physician, Dr. Henry Silver, at the University of Colorado in 1965, developed the first training program for nurse practitioners. Loretta Ford's personal story is awesome. Born in 1920, she graduated from high school at 16 and was interested in working in hospitals. Too young to be accepted into nursing school, she worked as a nurse's aide for a couple of years and then went to nursing school. 
When, during the Second World War, her fiancé was killed, she joined the Army Air Corps. The Army Air Corps was the predecessor for the Air Force, which did not become an independent military section until after World War II. She continued her education after the war, eventually getting her doctorate in education and degrees in public health. She became a professor, teaching nursing at the University of Colorado. While there, she was addressing the concept that primary care was likely to fall short of the need of the public when she, along with Dr. Silver, developed the first curriculum to train people already practicing as nurses to become nurse practitioners. Originally emphasizing pediatric care, as more nurses were trained and the practice standards expanded, there was some resistance from both nurses and the medical community. Unlike the simultaneously emerging physician assistants, where certification and standards were formalized at the inception or very soon after, it was several years later when there were several training programs in place and more than 11 nurse practitioner organizations in the country that certification and credentialing was instituted for nurse practitioners. Dr. Ford's career progressed. She was forever associated with nurse practitioners, but in 1972, she became Dean of the Nursing School at Rochester. She received multiple accolades for her influence on nursing, nursing teaching, and nurse practitioner training, and she retired at age 65 in 1985 and moved to Florida, where she still lives at 102 years old to turn 103 in December of this year, 2023, when I'm doing this episode. Nurse practitioners continued to be trained, and by 1979, there were around 15,000 NPs. In 1985, the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners was established. In spite of the fact that more providers worked alongside physicians, they were not recognized as independent practitioners, and their work was not reimbursed by insurances or under Medicare or Medicaid. Their paycheck came from hospitals or from the physician practices with which they worked. In 1989, President George H.W. Bush signed the Omnibus Reconciliation Act, which created some limited reimbursement for advanced practice providers, including nurse practitioners. The various nurse practitioner professional groups, previously somewhat independent from each other, gathered at a leadership summit in 1993, where a more unified approach developed. The National Nurse Practitioner Coalition, NNPC, was formed and later changed to become the American College of Nurse Practitioners, ACNP. This more unified group, with now increased numbers of NP advocates, increased their influence in the medical community and in governmental policy agencies. In 1997, President Clinton signed the Balanced Budget Act, which gave the possibility of direct reimbursement for the work performed by NPs. The Affordable Care Act later identified three primary care providers, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners. The Affordable Care Act provided access to millions of people previously not covered for medical care and thus increased the demand for primary care providers. Since then, gradual state-by-state changes have changed the scope of practice for advanced practice providers. PAs and NPs have achieved independence from physician direction to varying degrees depending on state legislation. 
Currently, the scope of practice from state to state breaks down to three tiers of practice. The first, and this was the case for the first few decades of APPs, is that the nurse practitioner is restricted to practice only under the direction of a physician or physician group practice with no autonomy. Some states have legislated the second tier that NPs can practice with an association and oversight of a physician, in essence that they may be practicing alone in a clinic, but their supervising physician is available for consultation and is ultimately responsible for the care provided to patients, but may not be physically present in the clinic where the care is provided. Other states have designated the third tier where NPs can be independent providers, not requiring a supervising physician. So the scope of practice of NPs and PAs varies from state to state, depending on the legislative specifics of each state. Also varying, according to legislative mandate, is the prescriptive authority of APPs. Some states allow full prescriptive authority, that the APP can write prescriptions at the same level as physicians. Some states require that certain levels of prescriptions, such as scheduled drugs like opioids, require a physician co-sign the prescription, even if the NPs can independently write other prescriptions. Some states still require a physician co-sign prescriptions no matter what they are. The public acceptance of APPs has changed over time. Initially, there was considerable resistance to being in a clinic, office, emergency department, or hospital and having someone who is not a doctor seeing them and being involved in their care, even if the physician did come in for part of the visit. In the mid-1990s, when the emergency department at which I worked began hiring APPs, we initially were expected to see every patient and be involved in the evaluation and choice of any testing or treatment. As time passed, this changed to a situation where we were obviously in the department and were available if needed for the APP, but the physician was not required to go see every patient that was cared for, although we did review and co-sign every medical chart. In my work in urgent care from 2007 to 2011, this same practice was the case. I was in the clinic seeing some patients myself, but was available, but may not personally see each patient seen by an APP, but I reviewed and signed every single chart. After I returned to hospital-based emergency medicine practice, the urgent care company that I worked for began having some clinics in which no physician was physically present at all, and APPs did the full visit. In those situations, as in an office or private clinic setting, Nurse practitioners follow similar practice patterns as physicians not in a hospital setting. If the severity of the patient complaint or their condition or need for testing or intervention is beyond the capacity of that office, the patients are referred for outside testing or for more intensive treatment. Some of these patients are sent to the emergency department, either by calling for an ambulance or, if feasible, to send the patient by private vehicle to the emergency department. Even in situations when a nurse practitioner is the sole provider available, they may have consultation capability with a physician either by phone or video conferencing. What is the public acceptance of APPs now? As would be expected, it varies widely, and one of the factors influence that acceptance is the age of the patient. 
older patients may cling to the concept of physician-only evaluation and treatment. The first few decades after NPs and PAs were introduced into medical practice, this was kind of the case, but it did see gradually increasing acceptance. Now, patients are often aware that they are very likely to see an APP and may or may not even see a physician at all during their encounter. Certainly in specific circumstances such as quick care clinics or many urgent cares, people know that a physician does not staff the clinic. Many private practices have all care provided by an independent nurse practitioner. As with the physician practice in the years when NPs started, over time the concept of APPs was essentially limited to general practice, but has changed. Specialization has increasingly become a factor in APP practice. Particularly if working alongside physicians, NPs may be specialized in OBGYN, neurosurgery, gastroenterology, or other specific medical care types. From the beginnings in 1965, Nurse practitioners are an increasing part of the practice of medicine in the United States. There are now over 192,000 nurse practitioners certified. The public has shifted from resistance to the concept to many now seek an NP as their primary provider. I've seen, and you have probably seen also, TV commercials promoting the use of nurse practitioners as a choice people should consider to be their primary care provider. I find it fascinating in this whole history that the nurse involved in developing the concept, formulating the curriculum for the first NPs to be trained and involved throughout the remainder of her career in education, Dr. Loretta Ford is still with us at 102 years old. Well, that's it for this two-parter, the histories of physician assistants and of nurse practitioners. I hope it was at least as interesting to hear as it was for me to research and to learn about myself. I have some other topics to address in future episodes of EMS History Method Media, and I really appreciate that you choose to listen. Please look over the first couple of seasons in the podcast and listen to whatever you think might be of interest to you. My personal favorite topic was my hero, Baron LeRae, who I covered in several of the first episodes in Season 1. As always, my current heroes are those involved in the entire realm of EMS and emergency medicine. Although COVID and the years since have profoundly strained and changed medicine in general, I think that its effects on EMS and emergency medicine have been the greatest. The efforts of those involved is intensely necessary and not nearly enough recognition is coming to those working in this endeavor. Well, thanks for listening. This is Rex, signing off for now, until the next episode of EMS History, Myth, and Media.